Welcome to the Fish Cast. We have special guest Chris Nee of Knowles247.com. Chris Nee will talk about the red hot start the Seminoles have gotten on the 2022 recruiting trail. We will also discuss FSU football as they get ready for spring football. What are the expectations heading into the 2021 season? In our final segment, we'll discuss Leonard Hamilton and FSU basketball. Welcome back to the Fish Cast, the uh, appropriately named Fish Cast. And uh, we got us a guest today, got us an exciting guest today. Florida State University has opened up the 2022 recruiting season hot, hot and fiery. And um, we got the man from uh, 24-7 Sports, Chris Nee, here to talk with us about this hot start, break this recruiting thing down. Um, so that's going to be pretty exciting to talk about Seminoles recruiting after a, a lackluster 2021 class. It looks like they are in a position to absolutely clean up in 2022. Um, I mean, Fish, what are your early thoughts on the Seminoles 2022 class? Well, they've done a phenomenal job. You can't argue with what they've done. And um, they, they stole a player in the Kelly kid out of Dillard. Um, I think Chris will probably agree. He's criminally underrated in the rankings. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into like two, four, seven. I, every, there haven't been enough people to watch these kids to really rank them. I mean, we could throw the rankings out. This kid's on, he's criminally unranked <laughs> or rank low. He should be a high four, possibly five-star kid and a top 10 to 15 player in the state of Florida. You know, Sam McCall is a phenomenal player and we're going to get more into you know Sam. Sam is from my, my yeah. high school. You know Sam. <laughs> yeah. Sam. So Sam Sam, knows about Sam. Sam's really good. But the even their look, like how you knew when we could all, you know, you go back to the Jimbo days. When they landed Cam Irvings, they landed the PJ Williams. Those were the floors of their class. And those guys ended up NFL guys. You take a guy like Aaron Hester, we'll get more into this 2022 class. Their floor in this class is very high. These are great players or potentially great players. And that's what you got to be excited about being a Florida State fan. And I'm sure Chris can elaborate more on it, but you can't ask for more uh, to the 2022 class this early, considering there's been no junior days. There's been no on-campus visits. There's COVID still exists. I mean, they've done a phenomenal job uh, for the 2022 class so far. Yeah, I mean, there's six guys into it. And at this point, all six of those guys are high impact guys. Aaron Hester, by rankings, is the lowest guy. Hester is a legacy, but he's a guy that certainly belongs in FSU's class. I wholeheartedly agree with you about Kelly. In fact, we, as a company, we rank him 132 in the country, which I still think is low, but that's drastically higher than the composite. The composite has him at 371. So I, I don't know if it's Rivals or ESPN, but somebody's way behind on him. And the thing I like about Kelly is one, I love his film. I've not actually gotten to see him in person in a game because of the circumstances of the last year. But in talking to guys like Andrew Ivins and other guys who have seen him multiple times in person, the consistent theme is every time they see him, he's better than the last time they saw him. And I love guys that are like that, who are developing their body as Kelly is. Great, great player. I mean, everybody and their brother knows Sam McCall and Travis Hunter are studs. Travis Hunter's arguably the best player in that class in general in the country. Um, he could be a freak wide receiver. He's a freak defensive back. And he's a dude that's going to recruit for you. All of those things are very important. I like class. Mark Yule is a good quarterback. I expect him to add a second quarterback in the class. The thing that I've enjoyed about 22 recruiting more so than anything, they've had a plan from the get-go about who they want to pursue, how they want to construct this class. And they've been very aggressive about doing that. And I think they're going to find a lot of success in the run-up to the season of being successful and landing guys they truly want that they believe will fill needs, help them at positions, you know, improve a spot like the linebacker position where last year was subpar from a recruiting standpoint. But the key in all of this is they're going to have to win to some degree on the field. You know, three wins isn't going to cut it. You're not going to hold on to a class with back-to-back low-level seasons like that. I'm not expecting some massive turnaround in Tallahassee. But I think you can do enough to sell kids on buying into what it can be. And that's by winning a few games, certainly being competitive and damn near every game you play and just looking like a program that has an idea of what direction they're going in and how they're going to get there. I'm going to follow that up with one of the questions we were going to have. It was at the bottom of the list, but I think seven games 
is a, that I believe that's a great turnaround or a very yeah. good turnaround. And, you know, keep some of the uh, rivalry games close. Does seven games keep that class to where they're at and maybe even uh, improve on it? I think it does. I think having somebody like Travis Hunter at the top is huge for you because he's headstrong and he's a guy that's kind of getting guys ears and he's going to work. And sometimes a class can stay together because a class decides it's going to stay together as a whole. And I think that's an important facet for FSU. I think seven wins and being competitive in the five losses is a very good direction for them. I mean, let's be honest. We've all watched FSU these last several years. They were dreadful. They've been dreadful. They gutted it last year, and they did that intentionally. They brought in some guys who they hope will raise the floor, especially through the transfer market. The goal is some short-term turnaround in the sense of being a better football team that's competitive and can win games. But long-term projection is by constructing classes like what they're trying to do in 22, which they have not been able to do in 21. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that more throughout the next hour or so. But, you know, 21 was sort of a relationships discombobulated, came in a little bit late in the sense of getting after that class, didn't have ties to the region, couldn't host kids on campus. There's a whole lot of facets of why that didn't go great. With 22, they've had the time to develop those relationships despite the inability to have in-person interaction. They've been hamstrung in some ways, but they've tried to work around it to their best, and they've been heavily focused on 22 and beyond, 23, 24, and even into 25 now. And I think we're seeing some of the fruits of those labors. The one thing I do like about Mike Norvell and the staff after, you know, roughly we're, what, 14, 15 months into dealing with them, I always feel like when plan A doesn't work, plan B is there and they execute it. And I feel like they're very good about being aggressive about what they're trying to do, but they're very steadfast in what they're trying to do. They're not one of these groups that will pivot very rapidly when it seems like it's not going well. They're going to let it play out in the long term. And I think we're seeing some of those uh, efforts pay off with this group early on. Yeah, that there's no question. I think the one thing you have to do in recruiting is one, I think balance, the classes have to be balanced out. You know, you, I, I hate to see one year a, a school take five uh, linebackers, the next year one, then two. It just it screws up the whole roster management. But you have to have that plan. You have to be able to, if number A is not there and he's gone, he's committed to somewhere else, B ain't too bad. And that's where I think Florida State, and I think you'll agree with this, they've made mistakes, especially on the offensive oh. line. You know, there's been guys that are B and C playing players that could have started and they went down to Z. I mean, they literally took somebody that didn't belong and they had to force them out there and the kid was terrible. And that's why the old lines never improved. You got to get numbers every year, four to five. And then it's a numbers game on the old line and D line a lot of times. You, you keep throwing bodies at the problem. That's how this works. And you got to get the right bodies. You know, Leonard Hamilton says about his basketball team, they're not all all-stars, but every one of them has to help my team. And I think in football, FSU's done a really poor job of finding guys that are going to consistently help their team. They've had too much dead weight. If you look at the roster construction last year, even before the gutting began, it was way too top-heavy with veterans that probably shouldn't still be in school because they haven't done anything, and then a boatload of young kids. There was nothing in the middle. They were so void of talent in those middle classes, the developmental talent that should be on the cusp of stardom or at least being a dependable piece. They lacked that so badly that as they started running bodies off, all they had left was this extremely young, inexperienced roster that they were rolling out there. And that's why they did go into the transfer market like they did. They had to bring in guys that had college experience because they have a void of issues with regards to experience. And those guys are Band-Aids. They're not necessarily solutions, but they do stop the bleeding to some degree while allowing those young guys to mature and you're restocking the roster in the hopes of, having class after class after class. When FSU competes for ACC championships, national championships, it's because they've had two or three great classes in a row and the talent's developing accordingly with some young guys emerging maybe ahead of the timeline of what you would expect from a young guy. FSU hasn't had that kind of structure to their roster since at least 2016. And truthfully, it's probably even a little bit before that, but it's been in insanely prevalent in 17, 18, 19, 20. And it was by 20, it was the roster stunk. I mean, it's work. I've covered FSU on and off for almost two decades. I had a stint there where I did the state of Florida for rivals, but I was still here in Tallahassee. I still was present in FSU games, went with the family and such. 
I've seen some bad rosters, like at the turn of the bout and end of the year to Jimbo. There were some rosters that were a little void of talent. Last year's roster was by far the worst roster I've covered in my two decades. I, I try to tell people, warn people that. I mean, before the season yeah. started, I said it's the worst backfield. And it it was the worst backfield just if you looked at the numbers. They didn't even have a guy that had more than 20 rushes going into the season. I mean, they just had guys that had never produced before. They didn't but just – it was a- it was across the board. O-line yeah. was bad, inexperienced, not talented, and some of the veterans aren't good. Mm-hmm. Quarterback, you didn't really have a guy that you were super dependable on. You were trying to roll with James Blackman. I think everybody and their brother hoped he would develop to some degree. That clearly wasn't happening. Running back, you didn't have a scoreboard wider, as I like to say. Wide receiver, you thought Terry would be the dude. He ended up not being the dude. And then you had nobody else that could win one-on-ones. And then defensively, they were a mess. You know, their defensive line was supposed to be the strength of that team. By the end of the first quarter of the Miami game, we all knew that was a damn lie. So, you know, it is what it is. Linebacker hasn't been a group that – linebacker was a pretty dreadful group that I thought last year it might turn the corner a little bit and show some signs. Some of those second-year guys didn't come along as I hoped they would have last year. So it was still a group that I would say left something to be desired, certainly. And the secondary, you know, for every guy like Asante Samuel Jr. who did their job at a high level – you had Akeem Denton who performed extremely poorly, and then you didn't have the guy who helps clean up so much out there most of the year because he was hurting Hampson Nazarene. So they, it just wasn't a good roster. It was nothing – you're always trying to mask an inefficiency with something that you do well. You know, if you can't throw the ball well, you run it well to create play action to create something in the passing game. Well, FSU didn't have things that could help them mask their issues because they had so many issues. So you bring up Akeem Dent. You know, you go look. One of the areas that Florida State seems to have talent is in that secondary. Uh, Damori Tate, Akeem Dent, you have Travis J. These are three, you know, highly regarded defensive backs coming out of high school. Do you feel any of them or possibly all of them can have a breakout this season in 2021? I, I don't want to abandon ship on Dent because he was such a talented high school kid and he is an excellent athlete and I think there's something there, but man, he's been dreadful and he was awful last year. So that's really, really concerning. I'm very interested in the spring and I know the spring is not going to paint a clear picture of what we're going to expect, but I am very interested in the spring to see how the defense is in the sense of being able to rely unit upon unit, you know, is a defensive line producing a pass rush with Jermaine Johnson coming in. Does that increase FSU's ability to get home on the passer? Because if it does, that's going to instantaneously help the secondary probably be a little bit better because pressure on the passer was non-existent in the majority of last year, despite trying to create in exotic ways and whatnot. And if the linebacker group's a little bit more sound, the middle of the field's a little bit more secure, which allows the safeties to play a little bit more on the outside, which allows them to help corners. It all plays to each other. And FSU was so bad at every level last year that there were too many times that DBs were just by themselves and they were dead meat and they weren't good enough to make the play individually, but they certainly didn't have the help of the other 10 pieces around them to help them. So I am interested, you know, I, I think Miko Dodson's a guy that they feel good about in the secondary Jarvis Brownlee showed some good signs of life last year, but a guy like a team, Akeem Dent leaves a lot to be desired. Interested if Demory Tate's able to go out there and do something after academically not being allowed to play last year, but obviously a highly regarded guy out of the high school ranks. So they do have some pieces of talent back there, but you know, they also brought in Jarquez McClellan and Brandon uh, Moore from UCF in the secondary. Uh, Jamie Romson, of course. And I think Romson's a guy that's certainly going to fit into that secondary immediately. But I'm interested how much you're going to have to lean on the other pieces, whether it's depth or these guys that are basically going to supplant other guys and end up being starters because the other guys just aren't coming along. So I, I'm, I'm hesitant to simply expect improvement because that's what you think happens year over year. I truly got to see it this year with FSU's defense before I believe it. Um, I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the quarterback position. You know, we talked about it a little bit before we got on here. Um, I think Jordan Travis is, I think he's probably the most underappreciated player on that roster. We talk about last year and how bad the roster was. And I say, you know, He's responsible for the three that they got in the win column. I, I truly believe that. I think they – I don't know if they get any more than one if he's not there, frankly. Where does he fit in? I think we all believe that Milton is going to – he's a transfer from UCF. He's going to come in. You don't bring him in to sit him. Where right. does Travis sit 
fit in. And I, I again, I think he's got to fit in at the quarterback position. Like I don't, I don't see him as just this as a as a kid that's going to voluntarily, you know, just go out there and be all purpose guy because he's still the best quarterback they got if Milton goes down. Like I wouldn't be. You can't afford to not give him reps and give him development opportunities, right? Right. I think he I think he does remain at quarterback when you're doing a depth chart and you're looking. I think he remains there. I do think Milton's going to be a starter. I think you got to get Travis on the field, especially early on in the year when you're still trying to figure out who your playmakers potentially can be of some of these younger guys that haven't done it. A guy like Brian Robinson, who was banged up last year, a guy like Destin Hill, who's not even on campus yet, for example. So I think you got to use Travis. We saw some elements of game planning last year where they would have him on the field in a second role in the offense outside of quarterback. I think we see some of that again this year. I think maybe you are able to game plan at a higher level in the sense of doing that a bit more often, creating him as a guy that defenses have to focus on because you can put him at receiver and roll him into the backfield. You can, you know, go empty set and bring him into the backfield and do some stuff. There, there are ways to be creative with him, but at the end of the day, I think Milton came into FSU, be FSU starting quarterback. I expect that to be how it plays out. But I do think Jordan Travis remains a quarterback. I'm not expect, expecting a full blown move to wide receiver or running back, but I do think he's going to be viewed more as an offensive athlete at the quarterback position. Well, you go into spring football, you talked about, you know, Miko Dotson a little bit, what, you know, you know, Corbin, you know, Corbin came in last year. He, he was, he had an injury from Texas A&M, Jordan Wilson. How how close is someone like Jordan Wilson to being a hundred percent? Is he ready to go for spring football or, I don't, gonna... I don't think he is. I don't think Devontae Love Taylor is quite yet. Uh, Wilson's coming off an Achilles. We all know that takes a lot of time. And the thing with Wilson is he's a very large body human being. He's essentially a tight end that's going to be a six offensive lineman for them. The thing with Wilson that they so loved and valued about him when they took him as a transfer from UCLA is they thought that would free up Cam McDonald a lot because McDonald would be able to flex out a little bit more while Wilson was more of the inline blocker. With him getting banged up, that didn't allow for that. I think in the spring, he's still going to be limited. Same with Devontae Love-Taylor coming off that knee injury. I think he's going to be limited. But I think those are two guys that are pretty important pieces for the offense. And Wilson's not a sexy guy from the stat standpoint. But I think from the impact standpoint, he'll be pretty damn good. You know, Preston Daniel tried to do that last year. Freshman walk-on performed admirably for a kid who just got on campus. But Jordan Wilson's a college-ready body who's a little bit more prepared to do it. Yeah, you know, I, I watched a lot of Memphis. Like, I watched, like, at least four or five of Memphis's games after the season and stuff and really looked. And the one thing about Wilson, and you're right, Norvell likes to use a lot of tight ends in his run scheme. I mean, they are two, two and two and three tight end sets. And his loss, because of how big he was, now you have a guy like Cam McDonald weighs, what, like 220 pounds. He's not really a blocker. And then the other guys are walk-ons. They really – it hurt their offense. Uh, yeah, a, a big part of it, and the, and everything's based off of their run game, their play action, their their jet sweeps, everything. He likes to do a lot of eye candy on offense, and and not having those tight ends, I think losing Wilson may have been one of the bigger losses that we really ne- nobody really ever talked about last yeah, year. Yeah, it, it hindered McDonald too. I mean, Cam worked hard. He got up to he's like two thirty five inches these days, so he did work hard to get bigger to be a more capable blocker. But he's never going to be that guy. He's a flex out receiving tight end very good athlete for a big body kid. You want him to be able to work in the, you know, FCC last year couldn't win a one-on-one on the outside if their life depended on it. They probably won half a dozen all season. And because Cam McDonald, well, one, you had a quarterback who doesn't do great work to the middle of the field in Jordan Travis. Jordan Travis, if it was schemed early, he could hit something to the middle of the field, but as the game wore on, he worked more to the edges and creative with his legs and his arm on the outside. He didn't work to the middle. That hurts the tight end. Kim McDonald, if you think back to last year, when he made a big catch, it usually was early in the game, and it was usually on the seam to the middle of the field, and it was usually within the designed opening script of the game. And then it kind of went away, and he just didn't exist. And it stunk for Cam because I know how hard Cam worked. I know how focused Cam is. Cam's one of the guys on this team that I actually think is a very dependable person who's bought into everything. But he was limited by so many facets of what they had to be offensively last year. He had to be a blocker when he's not a blocker. 
he couldn't be a flex out tight end because again, he had to be a blocker. He couldn't be a really good receiving tight end because he didn't really have a great quarterback to feed it to him as a receiving tight end. So is Cam McDonald a lot better than what we saw in 2020 in the Mike Norvell tight end happy offense? I think he is, but I think other pieces have to fall in place to allow him to be that. Hey, Chris. Well, you know, one of the things I want to, I want to do a quick little, I guess a little U-turn here and see, you know, as we're going to the spring in the 2021 uh, class, uh, there are six guys that I believe uh, were enrolled early. Uh, Malik McClain, I think Kevin Knowles, Josh Farmer, Jackson West, uh, Bryson Estes and Josh Burrell, I believe were the six guys. When you, when you look at them, uh, do you see impact possibilities for any of those guys this fall or they look more like they're going to be special teams and more and more just support or do you see maybe especially the receiver spot do you see one of these guys that can maybe you know step up a little bit I think the hope is that one of those two receivers becomes the guy they can lean on a little bit I think Destin Hill even though he's not enrolling early I think he's a guy they believe can be inserted next year and make an impact he's got that kind of talent that kind of ability the hope for them is that him, Andrew Parchment, who's a transfer that's not yet here, but is expected in May coming from Kansas. And then one of the two of McLean or Burrell is kind of what they hope revitalizes a receiver position that was so uh, poor last year, disappointing for them last year. Of the other guys, you know, I, I think a guy like Knowles helps on special teams. I think Jackson West certainly helps with the depth of tight end and the talent because a guy like Carter Boatwright's falling behind. A guy like Marcus Jim Douglas hasn't ever dressed out you know so I, that's a position where they lack any real depth and i think jackson's a kid that can come in play some spot duty but i don't think he supplants anybody as far as starter i think josh farmer is a bit more of a developmental defensive lineman his body's still in transformation he's done a good job of coming along and getting himself in much better shape in the last 24 months but he still has work to do and then bryson estes is an offensive lineman I think he might follow a similar career trajectory of uh, Thomas Schrader, a guy that I think Alex Atkins may like early on, and then maybe they try to figure him into it a little bit, but he's still going to be somewhat limited by the fact of his inexperience on the offensive line. So, no, I don't think any of those guys are true, like, no doubt, instant impact. I'm ready to slap it on him right now. I think one of McLean or Burrell is a hope that one of those two makes the greatest impact of those six guys. You look at the 11, there's 11 high school kids that are going to come in the fall. Um, you know, I, I really like Destin Hill, you have Hunter Washington, Rod Orr, Patrick Payton. Who of the guys that are coming in the fall do you think will have the biggest impact in 2021? I think Hill. Uh, I think they got to they got to find an offensive playmaker. I mean, it's that simple. Can Hill win one-on-ones? Can Hill stretch the field? Can Hill open up things for them offensively? I think he has a great opportunity ahead of him to – almost walk on and just immediately have a chance of doing something. Um, I, Rod Orr is a guy I think long-term is going to be a huge piece for them if he can develop some. I think he's a guy that Atkins loves. I think same for Patrick Payton and George Wilson. They both need to fill out those frames a little bit, but that speed rush ends that they severely have needed and lack. You know, I if I had to bet on one kid who I think might play a little bit more than we're expecting year one, it's Sean Bray Jackson. He's a big bodied kid. He gets after he's a pretty good athlete. He can play a little bit inside, a little bit outside. I, I think he's kind of got a Dennis Briggs role to him. I think he's a guy that JP and Odell will both like on the D line there. I think he can do some stuff early on for him. But if I'm picking one guy, it's Destin Hill. And I, I don't really have to think a whole lot about that, truthfully. Chopper is bigger than his weight. That's all. I oh, mean, yeah. I know that yeah, he's, he, he's not 230. He's like 270. <laughs> right. And he, he, I think, told me last time we talked, he was like 6'5, 265. And his measurements have been one of those funny, weird storylines because he hasn't been to an event, event and he hasn't been on campuses. We haven't been able to get updated, confirmed measurements. So we're all stuck on these old numbers. But yes, he is certainly much bigger. He is a, He's going to be an interior guy long-term. I think he still has enough athleticism right now to cheat a little bit and get away with yeah. strong side. When I looked, I thought he was going to be a three-tech all the way. Actually. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's where he settles in long-term. And I like Jackson. I, I think he's a kid that's got a good head on his shoulders. He plays hard. He plays consistently hard. And he likes playing football. Like, there's something – you know, Hunter Washington's kind of like that too. Hunter Washington's a kid that really likes playing a game of football. And – you need guys like that on your roster. Even if they're not the type that are going to be superstars, you need guys that are really dedicated to playing the game. 
as you're trying to rebuild your roster. Um, getting back to the offensive line, uh, I, I don't want to say – I don't want to ask is this going to be where they're going to be a strength, but do you feel like, say, you know, if Love Taylor recovers like we expect him to, that they've got, you know, seven or eight guys that you feel like they can count on? I mean, we know Washington and Robert Scott are, are you know, are kind of the two guys that they're looking mm-hmm. at. But, you know, beyond that, do you, do you feel like they've got a, a starting five that can be competent and, you know, maybe a couple of guys behind them that – you can look at it and say, you know, if they get into a little bit of an injury bug, those guys can step in and there wouldn't be too much of a drop-off. Yes, for FSU standards, I would say yes. I mean, I think Maurice Smith is a guy that very much has solidified himself on the inside. Dante Lucas in the right frame of mind is a guy that brings value to him, but that's also betting on a guy that's been inconsistent with regards to his approach to the game. Uh, Thomas Schrader, someone we spoke about earlier, he's certainly someone that I think Alex Atkins likes a lot. I think he's certainly a big piece of the future. You brought up Love Taylor, when healthy, very dependable, both guards, right tackle. He can get away with being a left tackle, but he certainly isn't a left tackle. Robert Scott Jr. is an excellent right tackle, probably could get away with being a left tackle, but I think they want him to be their long-term right tackle. If they could find a right tackle, or I'm sorry, left tackle to plug in there, who they were really confident in, and they would have a plethora of guards at their disposal with Smith and Scott at the center and right tackle positions. Yeah, they're in a pretty good spot. And a guy like Lord Willis, who I'll own this, when they signed him, I didn't think he'd ever really contribute here. They've been pretty pleased with his development. I don't think he's going to be ready to do it next year necessarily, but I do think he's going to have some return on that frame. He's always had a good frame. I, I thought he was an out Chaz Neal, who I just never expect to contribute here. So – they, they are still a tackle away, certainly, from being a higher-level good O-line, but they're in a much better spot than they have been in a few years. And there's actually development going on with the O-line. And there's some veteran pieces, a guy like Babyon Johnson, a guy like Brady Scott, who, well, you may not want them to be your starter. If they're your seventh, eighth, ninth pieces on an O-line, they're pretty good pieces for you. So they're getting there. But uh, they still have a spot available in the sense of signing another kid in this class. If somehow they can land a left tackle who's a plug-and-play guy, I think it really changes the dynamic of that offensive line group. I, you know, I was a big Lloyd Willis fan, and I actually, you know, put his name out there. He's he was one of those guys that only played one year of football, you know. Mm-hmm. So you, I, I've always we've gotten this discussion at every summer camp. I've told you like, oh, Lyman, take you take big, long, athletic kids and take a lot of them because you just yeah. don't know. At that position. Yeah. You know what? We knew when they took Chaz Neal, listen, the kid came to their camp and was playing D-line at the time. He was a defensive lineman and they threw him to trick it and they said, all right, we're going to take a flyer on him. And I don't have a problem with that. I I always said, you know what? I don't have a problem with them taking Chaz Neal because you know what? If he's the third or fourth offensive tackle in a class and you could develop him slowly, maybe he plays his junior or senior year and you could plug him in. But the fact that he you're you're relying on him what they had to the first two, three years. That's how you knew they recruited poorly. Is that is that you can't put yourself in a position that Chaz ever plays before year four. You gotta know that when you recruit a kid like that. I mean, Lloyd is developing into a potential future left tackle. Rod Orr was yeah. brought into potentially be a yeah. future left tackle. You see him starting to stack the pieces to try to develop it. That's just a position where it's so difficult to find a kid outside of the transfer portal that you can plug in and truly rely on. I mean, Robert Scott did an admirable job for a true freshman playing an offensive tackle position last year, but that's the kind of returns you're going to get. Robert would have games where he'd have a massive whiff in the first series or two. The nice thing about him was he was mentally capable of recovering from it. There's a lot of kids who aren't because they're green behind the ears. They haven't dealt with it. They get in their heads about the mistake they made instead of worrying about the next play. Robert Scott luckily is not that type of kid. But it's tough to find this. There's not a ton of them. It's just the bigger the body, the tougher it is to project, the tougher it is to rank them, the tougher it is to know what the heck they're going to be long term. But that's why you take several of them and you hope that it plan plays out. And I think when you have a guy like Alex Atkins, who I think I think he's the best coach on the staff, truthfully, I think that is something that drives confidence that development is going to come. No, I we can we're going to agree there. I think Coach Atkins is phenomenal. Uh, I think Corey's really high on him. You know, I know a lot of the fans, I've, I've gone on your boards and 
you know, everyone wants to run Dante Lucas off and this, but they don't understand that these kids are human beings off the field. Like there's a reason why Dante's had his issues and Corey knows what he's gone through. I know what he's gone through. You understand it. Coach Atkins likes the kid personally and wants him to do well. And I think that's the one thing is he, he is out for the best interest of those kids. And you won't find a lot of coaches that are like that in this business, you know, and he's one of those guys. Lucas's shenanigans for lack of a better term. And at time his uh, mental weakness on the field in the sense of emotionally handling situation, Miami game comes to mind, disappoint me. They drive me berserk. I don't enjoy them. I, I don't, you know, it doesn't drive confidence of running back out there, but a good Dante Lucas is a damn good offensive lineman. He's one of FSU's better offensive linemen when he placed at the top of his level. The issue is, is he going to get there? Is he worth the amount of blood, sweat, and tears that will have to go into it to do it? And as you brought up, I think this staff, Mike Norvell, Alex Atkins, and others have decided that, yes, he is. And hopefully Lucas understands that and is as equally contributing to it as they are to try to round him out and make him into a better player in person. And it's important. There are some kids that if they don't have this, they got nothing. And I think he's one of those. So, you know, I hope it works out for him. He drove me nuts at times, but I hope it works out for the young man. Like FSU will be better if it does work out for the young man. Wait wait a second, Chris. I know I drive you nuts. You still talk to me, right? I love you, Fish. I just think you're nuts in some ways. I enjoy sitting on golf carts and yelling at each other on those long, hot summer days. Hey, I already talked to – to get off the subject, one thing, I said, you know, I think we need to get Bud on this thing. And I, one of the questions I want to ask Bud is, who do you think people hate more on the internet, me or you? Because I think <laughs> that'd be a I great – But I think I think Bud's <laughs> a little more wide-reaching at this point, so it's probably Bud. I got him regionally, though. I, I, I got... <laughs> Come on. Who doesn't hate Bud? I mean, seriously. Like, I'm, uh... Hey, I he mean, does. Does I love, I love Bud's the best. Now, here's the one thing I love about Bud. No matter what you ask him, he's got an answer for it. All I don't right. think he knows, I don't think he doesn't know yet. I'm gonna keep keep it going. Other side of the line, you know, talking about that interior defensive line. Big Marv is gone. Uh, you know, he had he had the season that he had last year. Curry Durden is transferred over to NC State, so. At some point, he'll be on. Presumably, he'll be on the other side of the field against FSU this upcoming year. What's the FSU D tackle situation look like right now? Is there somebody you've got your eye on that could possibly step up and you know and be a big time contributor to that position? Because this looks like the least impressive group that they've had there in a very long time. Yeah, they don't have a guy that, you you know, Marvin was supposed to be that guy for them. And, you know, he's training that way until last year happened. They've got uh, Robert Cooper, big body, dependable, zero tech, line him up over, gobble up some space kind of guy. And then Fabian Lovett, certainly capable of contributing, has started in the SEC and the ACC. We kind of know what we're getting there. I think Dennis Briggs is a key to that group. Briggs is a guy that one, Odell loves him. Two, his body is now at a point where he's comfortable being that guy. And three, he should have a full year under his belt this year with the team because last year he stepped away, opted out for some time, due in part to a personal situation that kind of demanded his attention. Then he came back to the team. When Briggs is fully in, I think he's a pretty important piece. I think he helps at that position. Keir Thomas is probably more of an outside big edge guy, but I think he can slide in there and help them a little bit. After that, yeah, it's kind of barren. You know, Malcolm Ray is a guy that we're still waiting to see. Is he going to develop into anything? Jarrett Jackson was way too heavy last year, not explosive at all. You know, there's some other big body guys like, a, you know, Curtis Fan, for example, is a guy that I could see sliding inside. TJ Davis is another one. I'm interested to see what their bodies look like in, in the spring and then throughout the summer into the preseason. So, yeah, it's not a position that sets the world on fire by any stretch. It's crazy. When Jared Jackson came out of high school, I remember him at the FSU camp. I thought he was going to be an offensive guard. Like I, I always thought he had a guard body. And I think he's one of those kids that's making a mistake, not moving over to the offensive side. But um, one of the things, Chris, you I know, still that, think he's an what? I think he's an offensive lineman. I think he's an offensive lineman. Now, I'm like you. The first time I saw Jackson, and when I saw him even like pads and playing at FSU, I'm like, he's, he's, he's wasting his time on defense. I think, I think he's an OL. Yeah, absolutely. 
Any thoughts, Chris? I mean, I, I've never truthfully sat and thought just offhand that kid's an offensive lineman. I just he, – he, last year he wasn't a contributor. Like, he, he basically was out of football for a year before he came to FSU, and it showed. He was slow, he was heavy, and it wasn't there. It, uh, the, there was no explosiveness. There was no hand-to-hand combat that he was just going to whoop up on people. There wasn't value with him on the roster. And some of that, I'm sure, is because he's been away. Now, can he reshape the body, get a little bit back to his old playing form? He was a productive player at Louisville in year one of his college career. So can he return somewhat to that form? That's a question mark, but it wasn't there last year. One of the big things this offseason was the transfer portal. You know, I heard you know, you discuss it on another podcast. We know how big of an impact McKenzie Milton is. I think part of the reason they're recruiting so well, he was the first domino to fall and the good luck to start to – he changed the tide. Some of these other guys, Jamie Robinson, um, Jermaine Johnson, what do you think about them? Who you think these guys can make an impact uh, on Florida State this year? Yeah, I think it goes – Milton is clearly the dude for a multitude of reasons – most important position on the field leader, you know, he's going to establish history. And as you said, he got the dominoes rolling. I think he's super important. I think Jamie Robinson's a very important guy because he can kind of be a sort of like a Hamsa. And I always call Hamsa the janitor because he cleaned up old messes and FSU so desperately needed a guy like that last year and didn't really have it. I think Robinson can fall into that role to some degree. He's also a guy that kind of sets the tone because he's physical. Jermaine Johnson's hugely important if, he produces a pass rush because FSU so desperately needs a pass rush. I think he's the best pass rusher they have on their roster right now in the sense of having some college development under his belt. And then I would put Parchment in that category too, because they so desperately need wide receivers that can win one-on-ones. You know, he was very good at Kansas two years ago, last year, partly because of the quarterback situation, not as good, but it will be interesting. And then the other guys, you know, the DJ Williams, Zakir Thomas, Jarquez McClellan, Brandon Moore, I think those are depth guys that are going to help you be better at the positions by raising the floor. I think a lot of what you did with the transfer market is you understood you had a team that desperately needed an insertion of talent. And you, instead of aiming for the ceiling, you raised the floor. And I think they did that pretty effectively. I don't think they took a transfer who I don't expect to be a contributor for them. You know, there's not Deontay Williams in this group like a year ago. All right. You know, I, I really, I'm, I'm high on Johnson too. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm high. I'm a little skeptical. Not, not, not necessarily that, that he can't do the job, but I actually thought, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not one of those guys that thought Janarius Robinson and Josh Kanda were as bad as their performances showed at times last year. I, 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 at times, I don't know that they were necessarily put in the right positions to be more productive. You know, and that's, you know, that that's neither, you know, that's a coach thing, player thing. I just, you know, I feel like they were two players that that had more to offer. And I don't know if they were always given that opportunity. Um, that being said, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm pretty high on Johnson and I'm kind of, you know, parchment is that he's, he's such a, he's an interesting piece because they need a receiver to step up. I watched a lot of, I watched, I guess I've watched a lot of Kansas. I'm, I don't have a, I don't, I don't have like a, you know, I don't, I don't want to depress myself that much. I was going to say, why do you hate yourself so much to watch that much Jayhawk football? He did watch – he watched the Coastal Carolina-Kansas game because – Big Les Miles fan. What can I say? Yeah, and he told, he told me, listen, Fish, you got to look at the D-line at Coastal. And they were pretty darn good, and they proved it by the end of the year. Yeah. Yeah, my issue with Parchment last year was that, you know, the quarterback situation at Kansas wasn't great. He did very little to help it out. Like, he was not – in any way motivated to play last year. He, and he I mean, owned that, time he, To a degree, he owned that. Huh? The one thing I like about Parchman and digging into him, talking to people tied to Kansas that were familiar with him, he is very direct about stuff. Like, he – you know, a lot of guys, they give you the coach speak. They give you the cliche responses. Uh, he's not that. He'll kind of own it when it's good, and he'll own it when it's bad, and he'll own it when it's on him too. I kind of like that. I, I'll, I'll take guys like that because I think – they need guys like that, especially a guy who's in the last year of playing ball. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Well, now, I mean, we're here, buddy. I mean, 2022, we got we got players. There are players in this class, a lot of good-looking ones. 
what what if you had to ask if you had to contribute if you had to like attribute their success to any one or two areas what are they doing so well right now to where they're able to get kids i mean you don't see teams i mean florida state's florida state but you don't see teams that struggled the way they have the last couple of years that are picking up five-star players in uh in february i think only tennessee did that now we see why tennessee did that so and i don't think i'm pretty sure that ain't happening at florida state right now so what's what what, what can we contribute this what can we attribute the success to well, I think it starts with Hunter, and that starts with Marcus Woodson's relationship with Travis Hunter. Hudson, uh, yeah, sorry, Travis Hunter's relationship with Marcus Woodson. It's so close. I, I talked. To, I was Travis Hunter committed a year ago, a couple of days ago, and I remember being at FSU when he visited, seeing him hop out of the car and talking to him some after the visit, and watching him interact with Marcus Woodson. He's insanely close with him, and they have a great relationship. and I think when a guy like Hunter, you know, he's number four in the nation, the composite, he's arguably the best player in the country, definitely probably the top DB, could also be the top receiver. I think there's something about that being a tone setter. And then he's also a public recruiter for him. So I think that carries a ton of weight. Sam McCall was good timing to a degree. Florida kind of opened that door for them. They rushed in. You know, I feel like that, for all intents and purposes, really happened over the last five, six weeks. Yeah. yeah, they were involved there. They want they were interested, but FSU legitimately getting Sam McCall did not seem like much of a realistic thing until about four, five, six weeks ago. And the they're just you know good. Yeah, I was gonna say a little bit, you know, with Sam and and really the other 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 player that they're high on out there, Jalen Glover. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was talking this about fish the other day. The one thing I can say about that area, the area that I, I know very well is that Florida State still means a lot there. That brand still carries a lot of weight. That is a lot of that is thanks to Odell Hagens, both going there in 85 at the time when, you know, the good kids in Polk didn't go to Florida State. They, you know, the Wayne pieces, David Williams types, they went to Florida. Odell, you know, he bucked that trend, went to Florida State. There was another kid uh, that actually was from Lake Gibson. I can't, his name escapes me right now, but he was part of 85 class that also went. And that opened a door that led to, you was know, Shannon Baker or no? No, Shannon Baker came later. He came, uh, he came later in the nineties, later in the late eighties, right. but that opened up the door for, you know, Shannon Baker for Dodge, who's from Mulberry, Derek Dodge from Mulberry. Mm-hmm. Um, John Nance was a big part of that 93 teams from Bartow, Jeff Cheney, Melvin Pearsall, uh, another kid from Lake Rose Robertson, a linebacker. Like you can go down the line and it was really, And, you know, even now, those relationships that Odell's had in that county and that reputation that he's had for the last 35, 40 years still pays dividends. It's paid with, you know, with the Freddie Stevensons, the Chad Abrams, the Derwin Jameses. It pays now. I know him and I believe him and Jalen Glover's mom go back a long way. I think they go back to Bartow days, actually. So, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, there's a lot. You know, one thing about Polk County is that you get to a certain part of that county where there is a there is a there is a there is like a one degree of separation <laughs> between everybody. Everybody knows everybody, so you know I think that's an area they've really been able to bank on. And when that FSU offer comes in, like kids still like it. Kids still love that school in Polk County. That's still it still carries a ton of weight. Uh, you know they've got a 2023 kid. Um, Cortani, I can't think of his last name. Um, he's a DB. I think he's going to be a four or five star kid. And one of my classmates in the 94 class went to Ohio State, big time Buckeye. He knows that Cortani has this Ohio State offer. And I like to tell him, like, Justin, Ohio State just doesn't have it. Like, it doesn't mean anything in Polk County. Like, kids ain't, kids aren't really dying to go be Ohio State Buckeyes. But Florida State has always been, you know, that school. And I know it's, you know, I know some fans kind of pshaw because Florida does so well at Lakeland High School, but you know that's more of a. I think that's more of a recent thing than people think it is. Like it was. It's not like it's always been that way. Um, that's an urban thing. Yeah, it was an urban thing, and then it was. You know, Lakeland had an assistant on their roster who had their recruiting that just did Odell and he, him, and they just didn't get along. And I remember, you know, when I was talking with you and I was talking with Fish and. uh you know, Arian Smith transferred from Mulberry to Lakeland. I said, well, they ain't getting him then. Like, I told him to really taggart that. I'm like, you're not getting him. He's not going to go. Like, Lakeland High kids just aren't going to go to FSU right now. Nothing you can do about that. 
Um, and, you know, they, they were really trying to fight that. Like, oh, we got to get these Lakeland kids. I'm like, you know, you're wasting your time. Every minute you spend there trying to get a kid to go to FSU is a minute you can spend doing something else. You can, you can spend getting your hair cut or anything else more productive than trying to do that. But in that area, the one thing, so, you know, Alab, you know, Sam had committed to Florida. He was really close to Torian Gray. Uh, yep. Torian Gray got fired. Uh, ended up in South Carolina. South Carolina just wasn't going to be in the picture for Sam McCall. So Alabama you know, like said, that opened up. Yeah, Alabama was always Alabama was a concern, but it just you know the more the more I got to talk to people that knew Sam and that old community, they would always tell me he really likes FSU. He likes it a lot. He he likes what Mike Norvell's playing. You know, I think they're looking at him on an offensive side of the ball. He's kind of interested in that a little bit. You know, I think the one thing that Norvell's done, and I give him credit for with Hunter and maybe even with Sam, is the idea of telling both, we'll play you on both sides of the ball. We'll give you opportunities on both sides of the ball. And I don't know if that's, you know, just lip service, but, you know, I, I think it's when you're when you're in a spot where you're trying to get these top flight kids, you got to be able to offer them something that another school might not be able to offer them. And the idea that they could play on both sides of the ball, even if it's just situationally is something that other schools might not be willing to offer. Yeah. And FSU needs guys that can put points on the board. So like, well, it is lip service to some degree and that's natural in recruiting. It's also a necessity for this program. I mean, they desperately need guys that can make things happen. And Travis Hunter, you know, anybody that's had an opportunity to watch him, there's a lot of people that think Travis Hunter is a better receiver than a DB and he's probably the best DB in the country. I mean, that's, it's a crazy statement, but it's true. He's, He's an elite wide receiver. Yeah, I mean, and, no, I, I agree with you. I hate to interrupt you. I, you know, what I compared to Chris is Jerry Judy. I remember yeah. Jerry Judy. The first time I ever saw Jerry Judy, he was playing corner, and he went a hundred yards the other way on a pick six. And I never, I'm like, oh, this kid's going to be the number one corner. And he played some wide receiver and then he went to Alabama and the games change. You need your playmakers on offense. And Jerry Judy is like kind of my comparison to Travis Hunter. They need playmakers on that side of the ball. You win, win with the offensive scoreboard, you know? So. Well, that brings up a good point. Wide receiver target, Kevin Coleman, kid up in uh, Missouri. St. Mary's. Yeah. He, he, uh, not St. Mary's, Georgia, St. Mary's elsewhere. He He's a top wide receiver. He's a guy that Kenny Dillingham has been on a long time. He's a guy that FSU loves. And they're in it with six, seven, eight other schools, and they're all heavy hitters, and people don't think FSU has a legit shot. FSU has a legit shot. They've really built a relationship there. And the McCall example is a good one. McCall couldn't tell us who his primary recruiter was because he talked to so many people on the staff. And they kind of – they platooned him, and it worked. But that's what you got to do. If you're not a great program, if you're not a program that just, well, they're going to win 10, 11, 12 games. They're going to compete for conference titles. They're going to compete for national titles. If you're not that, you better be real good at the other thing, which is one, we can recruit kids. Two, we have some stuff to show from our past history of what we can develop and do, which they do from Memphis and other people from other ties. And then three, it's about, do I like that coach? Do I want to go play for that coach? Do I believe in what that coach is telling me I'm going to be for him and for his program? And I think FSU has been excellent in that last regard. And that they've been really aggressive with 22 kids to some degree with 21. I don't punt it is the wrong word because they still recruited 21 to the end, but they made an active decision. I'd say probably back in October that they were not going to pursue a whole lot of other high school kids in 21 because they didn't have relationships. They had not established them prior to that point. So they were going to hold those numbers for transfer portal. They executed a plan of going into transfer portal and getting pretty good players, but 22 is not that. And their future isn't that they don't want to live in the portal. They might pull a kid or two from the portal, but it's not going to be eight half dozen. Even I don't think they're going to hit those kind of numbers again. They want to recruit high school kids, and they've worked very hard to establish relationships. They're ultra-aggressive right now with offers to 23, 24, 25 kids because they want to be first. They want to be ahead. They want to trust their scouting evaluations, and they want to build relationships. And that's why they have a puncher's chance with you know Kevin Coleman, Marvin Jones Jr., given he's a legacy, but again, another elite-level kid that they're in it with. Wisley Bassaint down there at Miami. Uh, Anthony Lucas out in Arizona. That's a tie to Kenny Dillingham being from that area that's helping FSU to some degree, but he's an elite defensive tackle. Julian Armello, another high-level player. 
I think people have differing opinions on him, but still a high-level offensive lineman. Again, another legacy, but FSU has a chance there because of it. Jaron Willis, who I love, linebacker from Leesburg, Georgia, great, great player. FSU is one of his main schools. They've done a very good job. There's, I'd say, 30 to 40 kids that they've done a fantastic job of just establishing relationships with, really digging themselves in and making sure they're going to have a puncher's chance in the end to fill out their roster with these guys. And these are their guys. Uh, they, If they can win to some level, their class is going to be very much what they expect it to be now at the end of the cycle, if they can win. Now, if they lose, it's tough to hang on to kids that you get, and then you have to go to the next plan, next plan, next plan. And that's where it can get interesting. You hope you don't have to throw stuff on the wall and hope it sticks. You hope you're getting good players. But if they can win to some level, to six, seven, eight that we were talking about earlier, I think the class will be very much what they believe it can be today. And that's a pretty good sign because they believe they're in with some really good players who can certainly help them. And that that's it's a positive thing to see in FSU recruiting because didn't see it at the end of Jimbo when it was a mess, didn't see it in the Willie era once they played B Tech and everything kind of fell apart. Hasn't been around these parts in a few years and it is here this year. And it there is real momentum for once. And you know, if they pull off AJ Duffy, that's a huge one. I still think he's probably going to Arizona State if I had to make a crystal ball pick right now today. But FSU is very much in that. If he doesn't go to Arizona State, I believe it's FSU. And that's not a – it's not a, you know, only if he doesn't go there. It happens. It's more of an either or. So they've done a good job. I was going to jump in and talk – that was one of the next things is A.J. Duffy. I, I've watched pretty much all the quarterbacks uh, film off a of huddle and stuff. And I think A.J. Duffy is one of the top two or three quarterbacks in the country. That's yeah. my personal opinion. You know, I, I, I like him more than the kid going to Ohio State. My two favorites are Duffy and the kid, uh, the Taven Jackson kid out of Indiana. I yeah. think those are the two best kids. And I think they're the they have the most room to grow. But why, you, you know, you you say Arizona State, and, and I know I've talked to Bud about it. He talked about Arizona State. You know, most quarterbacks aren't flaky and play games and say, you know, the kid put a top four out. Why, why is Arizona State – one of those teams if he keeps saying they're not you know well i think 247 is to blame for that so i'll, I'll blame my own company over here crystal balls went in and i don't think he particularly liked it and i think that's why you saw that top four come out that didn't include arizona state was because crystal balls for the sun devils went in so i think it was a throw them off the sniff throw them off the path kind of idea i think arizona arizona state wholeheartedly is still in it the thing with Duffy is I think he legitimately wants to play very early in his college career. I think there's a little concern with the Sun Devils whether or not that would be possible next year because of the current quarterback that they have there. Is he going to be there after this coming year? I think that's a question mark. With FSU, most people expect it to be Milton this year, but obviously after that, it's wide open again. I'm going to be straight up and honest. I like Nico. I'm I, 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 he, you know, I watched his film. I think he's, you know, I watched some footage of him at like a practice or something. He's a lot better than the two kids they took last year. And then better than Purdy. And, and, yeah. and uh, I'm not a Purdy fan. I'm not going to lie. I'm not a Purdy or Tate should have been FSU, but um, that's another subject, you know, so. Nico's sophomore film is better than his junior film. And I don't know how much of that's team dynamics and whatnot. I'm very interested to see how he performs this coming year. I just like his – he has a cockiness. I don't want to say cockiness about it. I like him. how he throws it on the move. Yeah, but he has – he he knows he's good. And I like guys like – a quarterback, you got to have that confidence. James Blackman doesn't have it. That's why, I mean, not that, not only is he not talented, but you have to have that mental side as a quarterback. Like, I remember watching Tebow at, at Nice, and I'm not comparing this kid to Tebow – but he took a bad knees team and won a state championship on us. I, I mean, literally carried that whole program and town on his back. Nico has that swag about him. And I, I like that. I think he could come in and at worst, he'll be better than what FSU's had the last whatever since Jameis has left. But man, if they get AJ Duffy, I'm all in on the Norvell train. I'm telling you that right now. I think, no, I, I just think he's a game changer. You know, yeah. I think AJ's a game changer. And the one thing, and I've discussed this with everybody, the great coaches, the great quarterback coaches, whether it's, I think Jimbo's one of them. I, I thought Tedford was one of them when he was at Cal and Oregon. 
the great coaches land top quarterbacks, period. And if Norvell's going to be considered one of those great coaches down the road, this is his chance to, to really change the narrative of what he's done so far at Florida State. I think A.J. Duffy, if he pulls the trigger, I think Florida State ends up with a top 10 class. I agree with you. And I, I think Duffy is another statement guy. As we talked about Hunter, as we talked about McCall, there's something about pillars of a class building confidence for other guys to jump on board. Duffy wholeheartedly does that. When you get a quarterback, you're going to instantly get receivers to buy in, probably tight ends. O-linemen like to come block for a guy who's pretty damn good. And running backs will come if you get the O-line. So it kind of it has that domino effect that there's no doubt about. Duffy's been target number one for them at quarterback all along. And they love Nico. They're extremely happy to have Nico in the glass. But they've always intended to take two. And if I had to pick one out as number one, it's always been Duffy for them. MJ Morris is another guy in that conversation. Taven Jackson, who you brought up, is another guy in that conversation. I would say those three, Duffy being the third, and Nico are the four guys that they've always looked at as getting two that they want to have in this class. Well, Chris, man, what are you going to say, Corey? Let's, you know, let's say – Let's let's have a little fun speculation. Let's say they get Duffy. They get okay. Duffy. I think Nico would stay in the class with Duffy, don't you? More than likely, yeah. I mean, I I think the Arizona State dynamic would get interesting with Nico being an in-state kid, even though he's not. I don't think technically from Arizona originally. I believe he moved there, so that would create an interesting dynamic. But yeah, I, I think I think Nico's comfortable with the idea of a second quarterback in this class, and I don't think they're BSing him with regards to who they're pursuing. Now, now Milton is done after this year. That leaves them, if everybody returned for the spring, assuming both of the quarterbacks would be early enrollees like most quarterbacks are, that leaves you with five quarterbacks. Uh, you ain't going into the fall season with five quarterbacks. That just doesn't happen. So, right. we're, so in, to be honest, can we safely say that this spring for at least Rodemaker, Purdy, I'd say to a lesser extent, Travis, but Delvin Verrata, Maker, and Purdy, this is a very important spring just to kind of put themselves on that, you know, to kind of put themselves in position to, you know, for next year. Wouldn't you say they kind of put themselves in position for 2022 to, you know, be part of the conversation? Yeah, and I think it's more important for Purdy out of those two. I think he's got the better chance of those two. Yeah, I, I don't know if Verrata, Maker, is part of the conversation, period. No offense to him. I just, I don't see it. Yeah, I, th I think it's extremely – it's important for Purdy to show better arm strength than we saw out of him last year in games, and I don't know how much that plate on the collarbone impacted him. Legitimately don't know. And also it's just, you know, he got thrown in here in August. He gets hurt in the – I think it was the first scrimmage, maybe been the second one. I think it was the first, so when he's diving into the end zone on a two-point conversion – so, like, his preseason was blown up. So, really, his preseason was the Louisville game. And, you know, I, I have a tough time judging a kid based on such a short window of the ability to kind of gain experience. So, 15 spring practices, I think, are hugely important for him. No question. My only thing with Purdy and when I watched him in that game, I don't want, like you said, you don't want to ju judge a kid. It's so – I listen, I never thought Ponder would play in them – you know, one of the coaches told me he'd be a first round pick. I was like, what? You made a lot of money, Fish. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, you never want to say never because it is his first year. The disappointing thing to me is with him was I heard how great of an athlete he was. And it literally looked like he was running with two left feet. I, I just, he yeah. looked, he just I, did I not think... look athletic. And that was like, what? Uh, that was the one thing you thought he had as a strength. Board lore, you know, that was more of the board saying that he was this some some reincarnation of Lamar Jackson. Well, right. somebody was, said he ran like a four four. Now he, I know he he's, not gonna, he's not going to be Charlie Ward running the offense. I do think he's more yeah. athletic than we've seen. I, I think there was a lot of just bullets flying really fast combined with thinking instead of just doing going on for him last year. I am. I really want to see him in the sense of being comfortable, you know, 15 practices under his belt going into preseason, maybe not having a whole lot of pressure because he understands Milton's probably the dude I'm working for the future. Let's see how he handles it. Like I do want to see that. I want uh, Purdy's not a guy that I'm ready to sell on, but I'm also not buying. But I mean, but we, but we do have to say that like, 
if these guys, if these two guys struggle in this spring, that there's not going to be any margin of error for them, you know, when the, when, the, when there's an opportunity to actually get on the field, you know, and that's, that's why, that's why I wanted to, that's why I'd ask you how important this was because I think, you know, those two, Rodemaker and Purdy, are, they're playing for their futures at FSU right now. This spring is like they're practicing for their, to try to solidify their futures in this program. Yeah, that, that position so – I mean, quarterback position is such a storyline position because, one, it's cutthroat. Only one of them can play. But, two, injuries happen so much at it. But, three, how quickly you can go from having five, you know, thinking you have a plethora of guys at a position to one gets hurt, one transfers, and all of a sudden, oh, my God, you've got no depth. Like, it's just such a – it's a wild position. You know, O-line usually carry 15 to 17, and obviously some of those guys aren't going to contribute, but you usually have 10 you can rely on. Quarterback's one of those positions that you can very quickly go from having you think a lot to having pretty much nobody. So, yeah, I, but to the question of for Tate and Chubba, how important is this spring? I think it's hugely important. I think it's more so for Chubba, though, because I think for him, this is the preseason he so severely lacked last year. FSU basketball, is this the Final Four team? Did Hamilton get his Final Four this year? Last year's team was better suited to be that team than this year, and I'm still pissed off that the pandemic stole that from us. This team is capable of that, but they're also capable of losing on the first weekend. Yeah, so they need some breaks. They need some bracket help, maybe some bracket matchup help there. If Balsa can go back to the form he was – five, six games ago where he was really starting to show those signs of, oh, my God, I'm worried we're going to lose this guy early to the league. They're going to be a much better tournament team. But he's struggled a little bit in recent games in the sense of just being a super dependable piece. But Raekwon Gray, A.K. Turk's been a huge piece. M.J. Walker's a knockdown guy. Anthony Polite's a 3 and D guy. They got some pieces to do it. They got the depth. They can run 11 to 13 guys at you. So they can do it. Defensively, it comes and goes. They've had some halves of basketball this year. Virginia first half comes to mind where it, they can beat anybody in the country if they play that level of defense consistently and score at the high level clip that they consistently do. But there's also times that dribble penetration kicks their ass. And if teams are knocking down three pointers, they're in some trouble. So it, it's a very good team. I still think last year was a little bit more rounded in the form where you knew it was super dependable on a consistent basis every time out. Chris, I'm not going to lie. Last year, COVID saved me because I, you, you know, I'm not a Leonard Hamilton fan, and they, I, I, I get on the train, fish. Twenty I, years in, it took me a long time. I truly believe they would have won the national title last year. COVID didn't happen. Like I, I told, I was telling some of my friends, I'm like, damn, I'm gonna be eating crow because I watched them play a game late in the year and they, they spanked somebody, and I'm like, that doesn't look like a Leonard Hamilton team. They were actually fun to watch. This team offensively is probably truthfully better than that team. This team defensively isn't as good as that team. And this team certainly isn't as consistent as that team. But offensively, this team can, they can put it, they can put it up. It's all who they played, you know, like what bracket. Tournament so matchups, you know, I I think, I think a game like them in Illinois would be awesome. I think it would be a great, great game. Them and Gonzaga, the Zags always tend to be kind of their kryptonite to some degree in the tournament. I mean, so I watched I Michigan that. against Illinois last night. Was it last night? I think they could beat Michigan. I don't. I. I I'm not. That was. The, that's also the worst Michigan's played in a month for you know several. I, I up to that, a lot of people thought Michigan might be the best team yeah. in the country. No, I watched. I, I yeah. saw Michigan play twice. And that's it. They played against. Uh, they played. They just beat somebody. I think last weekend that I watched them play, and then they played Illinois. They. They won a big game and then they lost to. I think it was Iowa they beat, yeah. and um, I thought they looked good. But I was like, all right, Florida State. I still think is a little more athletic than them. But I mean, I, I think FSU. If I'm doing tiers, I think FSU is at five to eight tier of teams in college basketball this year. I don't think they're Baylor, Gonzaga. I would still put Michigan and probably Illinois in that top four. Nova would have been in that second tier with FSU, but their best player just got hurt. You know, Ohio State's probably in that second tier with FSU. Iowa's probably just outside that second tier. You know, I'm forgetting a couple teams. Maybe Alabama, when they're knocking down the threes, are probably the best SEC squad. And when they hit threes, they're pretty tough to kind of keep up with. But FSU's pretty damn good. And truthfully, in watching college hoops this year, 
you know, I mean, heck, Baylor almost lost to a dreadful Iowa State team, but they were coming out of a pause. Michigan, who looked like arguably the best team in the country, gets just absolutely smoked by an Illinois team who doesn't have their best player that night. So there's so many examples of just teams kind of falling off. Zags have been kind of consistently just really, really good. But FSU is not far off. And when FSU plays at our top level, they're as good as anybody in the country. Every time I turn a Zach game on, they remind me of Duke before Duke started winning championships. Like they're yeah. really good. <laughs> they're a really good basketball team. You know? It stinks that they played like Virginia and Virginia this year just doesn't have the firepower to beat great teams. Like Virginia is a very good team. They're a tournament team. Tony can probably make a run with them. But watching Virginia when they lost to FSU, that Virginia team isn't built to be a juggernaut, to beat juggernauts. And the Zags, because of the conference they're in, don't play a lot of great competition. So when they do go and try to add somebody, and Virginia was one of those this year, it's not a challenge that you probably hoped it was when you scheduled it. All right. Well, Fish, you got to get on the Leonard Hamilton train because he just signed you do. a five-year extension. I mean, he's, what is he, 71 going on about 33? He's 72. So, he will be 76 when that contract ends because it's it's retroactive to April, like, so it's four years. I feel, good about, I feel good about not having to get on the beat train yet, all right? I Like, I, I, I follow Chris. Chris does a great job of, like, making the baseball team actually look better. <laughs> not this like, year. <laughs> Nobody can do that for them right now. They can't hit it for I, I, I may go one for two, all right? I didn't I, like I, you know, you know I didn't like Hamilton, but I definitely didn't like me being hired. But <laughs> I love baseball. Blue and me talk about baseball whenever we have a moment because you know Blue's been such a huge baseball fan. Baseball's been, I mean, they're two weekends in, so it's super early, but it's been rough. They're they're not good at the offensive side of plate right now. They're just it's not happening. Yeah, I, I can't make it pretty, buddy. I can't put lipstick on the pig right now. So well, hopefully that changes this weekend with Virginia, but we shall see. You're saying I won't be eating crow on that. No, one? I don't think you will on that base. <laughs> the league is too good this year yeah. for I think this team to do that. But he is recruiting at a high level. We'll see. I, I think he deserves a little bit of time. I don't. People are going to be in a rush. You know, because of nepotism, they think that's the only reason he got it, which to some degree, it's part of the reason he probably got it. But that staff he has, they do recruit really well. And baseball is such a, you know, we've got kids that play baseball. Baseball is recruited years out, even more than football. And truthfully, even more than hoops, which is accelerated. So baseball is one of those things that when you get a new coach, it's more about two classes away than this class or that next class. It's one after it. And they've done a pretty good job in assembling talent in that. So we shall see. I'm a, hold the rope. Hold the rope. I, I'm a patient man. Leonard Hamilton taught me patience. Well, it only took 20 years, but hey. You hey know? They were pretty good in 2012. They hung a banner. Yeah. Well, Corey, what do you think, man? I Listen, I want to tell you, I had a great time. I hate to cut it, you know, cut it short because I know you probably got some things to do, Chris. But I got to tell you, I really appreciate you coming on tonight. This may be the Chris Nee show after this week. I mean, I, you may be the host of our show. You were so good, but I really appreciate you coming on. And how could uh, fans follow you? you know, people that want to follow Chris Nee. I mean, the, the site is Knowles247.com on 247 Sports. And you can also follow me on Twitter at CNEE247. And for the most part, I don't talk a whole lot on Twitter. I pretty much just link to stories that we write and once in a blue moon put up something work related i'm not one of these people that my personal life's my personal life it's not my twitter life well, i had a good time man chris and and you're welcome on anytime you know hopefully uh, like i said this this cast is your cast man so anytime you want to come on and i'm glad you came on i enjoyed it i appreciate you guys having me thanks a million chris we appreciate you brother all right buddies i'll talk to you guys later talk to you later